Welcome to the second of my interviews that I'm sharing with you from my Rhodes College class, Econ 265, the Economics of Racetrack Wagering Markets. Today, I'm going to share with you my interview with Dick Girardi. Dick had a long career with uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, where he specialized in horse racing and college basketball. He also is a member of the Byron Associates Speed Figure team and has been making speed figures since the 1970s. So uh, again, I had a, a great conversation with him talking about speed figures and betting and how to sort of put speed figures into action to try to, to turn a profit. Uh, my interview was recorded on February 14th of 2022, and I hope you enjoy it. Before we continue, I want to ask for your help. I'm on a panel uh, the week after next at the Racetrack Industry Program's annual symposium in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, the panel is Horse Player Roundtable, What Does the Core Customer Really Want? And so I want to hear from you, the listener. I mean, y'all are the core horse player. And uh, email me, send me an email with any sort of suggestions. And I'm looking for small suggestions, anything from small to big. Obviously, you know, pricing is the biggest. We need racing to be priced competitively with other betting opportunities. I've been to the symposium. This is my fifth time. I've continually harped on pricing, lowering takeout, lowering host fees. So those would be, you know, those would be sort of big issues that, you know, I want to continue pressing. Uh, There are other issues like that as far as racetrack timing availability of data uh, that, uh, that, you know, we want to continue to push for. But, but give me some small things. Give me some things that people overlooked. I'll, I'll give you an example of one. Uh, if you're watching a race, uh, no matter if it's a major race or, or cheap claimers, if a horse, you know, wins by 10, opens up uh, open lengths in the field and dominates, the cameras tend to zoom in on that horse. So they tend to zoom in on the winner and you get to see that horse, you know, galloping and dominating through the wire, ignoring the horses that are in the that are in the back of the pack, ignoring the runner-up, the third-place finisher. And again, eighty percent of our money, right, are tied up in exo- in exotics, are tied up in um, place and show wagers. And so, in any given race, betters have a vested interest in who finishes second, third, and fourth. But the camera guys tend to focus on the winner in open length. Uh, triumphs. In fact, if you look at the Breeders' Cup Classic, same thing happened. There are people who had all sorts of money through Taiba or Olympiad, and they they had this close battle for second and third that dramatically, I mean, it turned the Breeders' Cup betting challenge, right? Um, if if uh, Taiba finishes second, Sean Borman wins, and Drew finishes Drew finishes second. And yet uh, the camera zooms in on Flightline, and uh, we later see uh, Olympiad pass Taiba right under the wire. And so, you know, not only does it sort of take away from, you know, our enjoyment of the race's betters, uh, for our understanding of the race's betters, but I think furthermore, you know, it diminishes the public vision of Flatline's dominance, right? Uh, you don't get to see Flatline lengthening his lead in the stretch. And so, you know, that's one thing I'd love to fix. And I'm just not sure anyone has thought about that. So anything like that, um, please feel free to email me. My email address is Graham at roads.edu, that's G-R-A-M-M at R-H-O-D-E-S dot E-D-U, anything you might think of that uh, that we may have overlooked that we want to sort of bring up this panel that, that might be simple fixes. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Millridge Farm. Millridge stands Aloha West, who's entering his first season at Stud. He'll cover Mares of Spring for $10,000, uh, and I'm pretty excited about him. I think he's going to offer great value. He's by hard spun who's by Danzig, and that Danzig line, of course, is very important. Danzig himself, uh, while, you know, 
not being a stakes winner. He got hurt, uh, famously hurt as a two-year-old in training to Woody Stevens, was taken to stud where he sired nearly 200 stakes winners, including a number of prominent and important stallions, including Dane Hill, who maybe is the greatest stallion of them all, at least is in terms of the number of stakes winners, and even more recently, Warfront, who's proven to be a sire of sires and is a sort of perennial top five, top ten stallion in the U.S. Uh, Danzig's son, Hard Spun. Of course, Hard Spun competed in the 2007 Kentucky Derby, and what a great group of stallions that was, right? That class of 2004, that 2007 Kentucky Derby. Uh, Hard Spun, Street Sense won the race, and Curlin finished third. All have proven to be excellent stallions. Hard Spun has 98 stakes winners, including Aloha West, as well as Sire's Wicked Strong, Spun to Run, uh, um, Silver State. Again, Spun to Run won the Breeders' Cup Dirt Mile, uh, and, and Aloha West won the 2021 Breeders' Cup Sprint. So, again, Aloha West uh, has every opportunity to be an excellent stallion. He's out of a Spitestown mare. Again, very much looking to see how he performs on the racetrack. And once again, want to thank Millridge Farm for their sponsorship of these interviews. All right, Dick. Well, anyway, thank you for joining me. Why don't you first give me just a little bit of your background, how you got involved in the buyer speed figures and really how you got involved in racing. Right. So I got involved in horse racing in the mid to late 1970s. I, I grew up in Baltimore, uh, went to college, University of Maryland, and had friends that I played poker with. And then they said, hey, you really need to go to the racetrack. That's like a, an interesting gambling game. And I, to say I knew nothing would be an understatement. Um, and I was immediately intrigued by it. I didn't know really anything about the sport. I'd watch the Triple Crown races like everybody else, but that's really all I knew. And little by little, I started to learn more about it. And fortunately for me, as I was learning, Andy Byers' first book came out, Picking Winners, in 1975. I read it and it immediately like a bell went off and I said, wow, that makes sense to me because I was already having people tell me at the track that times don't matter. I said, well, that can't be possible. So when, when Andy put it into perspective and in the context of why they do matter, that gave me a big head start in the game as a, as a player, which is why I originally got into it. I had a journalism degree from Maryland uh, and I was sort of cruising around driving cabs, uh, doing different things, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And then all of a sudden I said, well, hey, these could be two things at once. I really like the racetrack. I like hanging out. I like playing and I like writing. It's what I know how to do. So that became a career for me. I wrote about horse racing for still writing about it for 40 years. Uh, and of course, I spent many days and my favorite days are days at the track gambling. And that goes without saying, no matter what else I'm doing, my always my favorite days were the ones at the track betting. So what was your first newspaper job then? Was it Philadelphia or in Baltimore? It was in Baltimore. It was, a, it was interesting. Uh, it was at a little paper called Sports First. It came out, I want to, let me see if I can get this timing right. The summer to the fall of 1983, which happened to correspond with the year the Orioles beat the Phillies for, in the World Series. And I was hired as the horse racing handicapper writer because I had done a few freelance pieces for the Baltimore News American, uh, where I had some friends that worked. And then when this new paper came out, all sports, um, that they said, well, they wanted somebody to do just horse racing. So I was hired. And the good news is, I don't know that anybody was reading it, which was probably the best mm -hmm. news. I knew really nothing about anything. 
I wouldn't want to go back and read those stories today. Uh, and I wasn't very good at picking horses either. I mean, I knew the game. I'd already had some success gambling, but it's very different to do, becoming a public handicapper from actually playing the game. Uh, so yeah, that was my first job. And, and what was great about it was I got all this experience uh, for a year. The paper only lasted a year. Um, and and really all the mistakes were kind of covered up because there weren't that many people paying attention. But that was my first actual job in journalism. So how did were you making figures on your own before you met Bayer or did you meet Bayer and then and go off with him and start working? So how did how did that evolve? Right. So I, I, I made started making figures almost immediately after I read the book. Uh, I ended up in the Salima room of the Bowie Maryland Library, just as Andy suggested in his book, uh, and actually met what turned out to be two lifelong friends in there who were doing the same thing, one of whom I played with for years, uh, Ray Tannehill, who was a basketball player at what is now Towson University. Uh, he and I played contests together, played pick sixes together, but we were all kind of learning at the same time. So yeah, I had been making, I started making figures probably I want to say maybe around 1976 or 77 when there weren't that many of us out there doing it. So you were kind of in a spot where you were playing against people who go, well, wait a second, that horse was in for 5,000 last week and he's in for 7,500 this week. So he can't win. And of course we knew not only could he win, but he was going to win because he was faster because we had the numbers, but not that many people did. It was sometime in the late, 70s where I would have met Andy probably for the first time, uh, like hanging out. Uh, I knew people in the press boxes. I wasn't working yet at the at the Maryland tracks, uh, Bowie Laurel and Pimlico. So I'm sure I just ran into Andy at some point and just said, hey, I just wanted to introduce myself. I use your figures. You know, I love reading your stuff. Of course, he wrote for the Washington Post at the time, the star before that. And I did. I mean, I he was he was different than anybody else, not only writing about horse racing, but really writing about anything. When, so at what point did you actually start working with Byron Associates and making figures? Right. So what happened was when I moved to, we all, we all were kind of doing it individually. When I moved to Philadelphia in the winter of 1985 to get a job at the Philadelphia Daily News as their horse racing writer uh, handicapper, which I did in some form or another for 33 years until 2017, Andy suggested that uh, myself Randy Moss, Mark Hopkins, and Andy kind of form like a circuit among ourselves. Like I was doing Garden State Park opened April 1 of 85, and I literally had to create a set of speed figures from scratch. So we just started to informally share figures. Like I was the first one to be able to tell everybody that Spendabuck was the fastest three-year-old in the country because he ran at Garden State Park. And I actually was almost questioning myself because I was at this brand, brand new set of figures was I really correct? Well, it turned out I did have it right. He was the fastest three-year-old in the country. And what happened is that evolved over time to where we, uh, it was about two years later, uh, we ended up in principal American racehorses where we put our figures uh, for, I'm trying to remember the name, Oppenheim. I'm trying to remember his first name. Really good guy. He, he loved the buyer figures. And he said, hey, we'd like to see if you guys could produce a figure for every stakes race in the country. And we'll put this in this book. That's kind of where we first did it. That got us noticed by various people who said, hey, we'd really like to make figures even bigger. And eventually it evolved in the early 90s 
where uh, the Buyer Associates, which at the time, Andy and Mark Hopkins owned the company, they still do. Uh, Randy, myself, a couple others, we ended up doing every racetrack in the country for the racing times. And so that's the first time it became a business. So it's, that's been around now for three decades. How different were the, the sort of betting odds, you know, pre and post pre and post buyer, pre and post going public? Was it just really a different world in the seventies uh, where you see high figure horses at, at good odds or, or, or what was, what was the difference? Yeah, it, it definitely was a different world from when I started. There's no question again, because there, Andy's book hadn't been at, out that long. And as he pointed out in his book, a lot of people just weren't going to be willing to spend the time on this. And it is time consuming. It's time consuming, first of all, to, to make a set of speed figures at, at a racetrack. If you don't have now, I mean, now it's easy because everybody's got access mm. to them. But back then you had you had to spend hours in a library. You had to you had to sit there with these parallel time charts, writing down every time for every class of horse at every distance. So it, there weren't that many people willing to spend that amount of time doing it. But it as it as it started to evolve and more people had an understanding of you know what this stuff is really good. And of course, Andy writing about it in the Post and in his books, I think he converted a lot of people, myself certainly included. Uh, and people of my generation, I think yours too. Uh, it, we said, you know, this this data uh, way to look at horse racing is just makes so much more sense than what some of us were told when we first came into the game that it, numbers don't matter. Well, of course they matter, and times matter, and data matters. Um, but yes, dramatically different from the mid '70s when I first started. Even into the 80s, it was getting harder. You could tell prices that you would have gotten, you just weren't getting anymore because more people, and I think more people who bet serious money, were not doing it without a good set of speed figures. Uh, and then, of course, when the figures actually started being published in the early 90s, that changed again dramatically because then you didn't have to do the work. You just had to buy, you had to buy first racing times, which was around for about a year. And of course, when that folded, then DRF picked up the numbers and we've been with DRF ever since. It'll be a 30 year anniversary. In fact, this, this, I believe this April, it'll be 30 years since the figure buyer figures have been in the DRF. When like at, at that point in time, I mean, obviously in the seventies the and eighties, there were other figures out there, you know, how, you know, how big were like sheets players and, and, and sort of all, alternative speed figures? How, how, how big a role did they play back then? Yeah, it's interesting. I knew nothing about them when I was still in Baltimore. I was kind of, um, I don't want to say sheltered, that's not the right word, but I just didn't know a lot of people in the game. Uh, it really wasn't until I came to Pennsylvania and, and did Garden State Park and what was then called Keystone that I actually started to run into Sheets players. And I was fascinated because I, any, any kind of new, I'm always looking for any kind of new angle. And, and look, they were doing what we were doing, maybe in a different way, but we're basically trying to come up with the same answer, right? Who's the fastest horse? Uh, the sheets, whether it's uh, the Ragazins or the, the thoroughgraphs. Uh, I know Jerry Brown, they, they, it, they do a great job. It's, it's, it's just, they're in a different, a little different way than we do it with the ground loss and the weight. We're just strictly a final time operation. And then you figure out the rest of it for yourself. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't really know much about them until, until I'd say, the mid to late eighties uh, when I just happened to meet some people and I, and I would see these things in their hands and I'm going, what are these things? And they said, well, those are the sheets. I said, well, tell me about it. That's kind of how I learned. Yeah. I guess it also was a different environment. I mean, the crowds were big, but I was wondering, did you know anyone like, 
you know, did you know anyone back then who wasn't a speed figure guy who had success? Was there a way to beat the races without figures back then? Or um, there must have been something else that worked. Yeah, I mean, if there was, those were not the people I hung out with. Mm -hmm. Uh, I hung out with, like I said, Ray, my buddy that I met in in the Salima room. Mari Wolf and I hung out every day for years at the Maryland tracks. A guy named Fred Baker hung out with us. I don't know. If, I'm never sure if Fred actually used the numbers or not, but he knew something because he was really good. He bet a lot of money. Uh, and and Mario was an education, I think, for me to be around him because he had a different way of looking at the game than I did. Um, I had a little different way of looking at it than he did. And of course, he wanted him to be a, a great player in his, in his own right. And he went, he went on to just stay as a player. And I, I, I went on to the newspaper business and played occasionally. I wasn't an everyday player uh, after, after I started the newspaper business. So what, what tracks do you, uh, do you make figures for now? So I do, in Pennsylvania, I do, I do Penn National and Presque Isle Downs. I do the entire Ohio circuit. For the first year in 2022, I'm doing Charlestown. And I also do Canterbury in Minnesota. Uh, so like right now I'm doing three tracks, uh, Penn, Mahoning Valley and, uh, Charlestown at, in the summer, it's always a little more because there's more races racing in the summertime. I could be doing sometimes five tracks at a time. And that's kind of how we all have it. Like Andy, Andy Byer generally does the, he does Southern California and Kentucky, uh, Mark Hopkins does New York and Florida. Randy Moss does. I, I've lost track of how many Randy does, but he does a whole bunch too. And we have like a half a dozen people on our team and everybody's assigned a certain number of racetracks that we do uh, throughout the year. Is there a particular track or, or distance or, or that you're extremely confident in and then another track that, uh, you know, where, where you, you feel you struggle more just in terms of making figures? Yeah, this can be now question. or historically. Yeah, it's a great question. My all-time favorite to do tracks was Emerald Downs in uh, in Seattle. It just worked. It, they just made sense. I don't. I don't think they have turf racing now. No. I, I know. I know they didn't when I was doing the numbers. That's always easier for a track because you have a larger sample size. When you're doing a track, say like um, like Belmont Park or or Gulf Street, when half the races are turf races, let's say you have ten races, you only have five dirt races. Just, I mean, you're a data guy, just the way you would look. If you have more information, your chances of getting a, a better variant are clearly better. I know Andy was ecstatic this uh, this fall when Churchill closed their grass course. Mm-hmm. All he had was dirt races. He said, man, this is like going back in time. This is like very simple. I have more, th- more data. So yeah, Emerald Downs would be probably my personal favorite. And I'll be, be honest, my home track parks, has always been confusing from time to time. <laughs> I had a winter uh, several years ago where, and it took me a while to catch on to this, where the route races were so much slower than the sprint races because the track, if you remember sometimes, a lot, a lot of the east, Northeastern tracks will do this. In the wintertime, they'll put more dirt on it to, and, and it will slow down. And they're just, they're just trying to make it as safe as possible. So what happened was when they did that, the roots, and if you think about it logically, they became even slower than the sprint. So they didn't they didn't equal like they should to. It took me a while to catch up to that. And then I had to go back and change some stuff after after I noticed it. But yeah, that was that was a problem. Uh other tracks now, Mahoning Valley can be a bit confusing. It's all dirt, uh, and they don't have that many distances. 
uh, one of the problems there was we were having when we still having issues with the timing system. That's one of those with the GVAX, and the times were all over the place. And then we had to start timing them, and that made a little more sense. But yeah, that's also a track that I, I, you're, there are times when you're really confident when you're doing your variant. And there's times when you're going, yeah, I'm open. I'm I got this right. Uh, and of course, we always go back and check. If we're not sure of something, when horses start to run back, we're going to go back and look to make sure. And we'll make changes because we're not in, we're, we're nowhere near infallible. This is not, this is uh, very much of an art. Uh, there's science to it, but there is definitely art as well. It's, a, it's numbers based, but you better be able to think for yourself and think through some problems that aren't easily solved. Do you have any theories why, and again, this is, you know, I'm thinking about like, you know, we think of these and we watch the tracks and, and we think about times, but I'm always thinking in terms of speed figures, but why do the tracks vary so much, even within a day or day by day, why do the times fluctuate so much? Why does that happen? Yeah. Any, any theories? It's a great question. Um, obviously track maintenance is the key to that. Um, some tracks, I mean, I did turf paradise for a while, turf paradise and Emerald downs for the people that ever watched times. They're the two fastest tracks in the country. I mean, horses, would run 109 there, would run 112 at Pimlico, the same horse, right? It just, it, it just, they're, they're just very different. So part of it is how the, how it's maintained. I've always wondered, just as a laugh, you know, are they a downhill at some point? Like that, that's why they're going so fast. Uh, in winter time, it definitely changes because of the way tracks are maintained. Um, we've seen it in some big days. I mean, historically, Probably the all-time legendary big day was the the Monarcos Kentucky Derby uh, 2001. Uh, point given was the big favorite, and the track was totally souped up that whole weekend. They were setting track records all over the place, and and a, the variant was just some crazy number. Uh, but it, it we were able to figure out who could run fast. What was interesting about that particular day was the horses who ended up doing well on that track none of them came back to perform like they did that day. It was almost like the track helped them run this optimum performance, but it just wasn't the reality of what these horses were. And there were some great horses, point given being the obvious one that particular day, who just didn't run anything near what his capability was. Mm -hmm. When you had, uh, uh, the, I guess it was the, you were already talking about spend the buck tanks prospect. You're in on the Preakness day. They that track was super fast, and he set a track record. So uh, yeah, a, lo a lot of the track records. That's why the old um, DRF uh, speed number plus uh, their their version of the track variant was never really. I mean, people still use it. I get it. I want to knock it, but they're basing it on one thing that happened out of the blue, a track record. We're we're obviously basing our numbers on what happened on a particular day and in the context of what's happened historically with those horses. Mm -hmm. Now, um, in talking with Randy, he, he's very much a by-the-clock guy, and uh, I guess he's referred to as Scalia of your buyer and associates group. Yes. Uh, you know, how are you in terms of the sort of decision to project or trust the clock uh, as a speed figure maker? Right, so I am as far from Scalia politically as you can possibly get, but... Scalia would like me as a speed figure guy because I'm with Randy. I'm a number is the number guy uh, unless proven otherwise. And look, there are times, and I've ha I had one recently at Charlestown. Well, I said, this, this time just doesn't make any sense. So I projected it into what I thought should have been the rational number. Well, it turned out 
uh, <laughs> Craig Milkowski times every race everywhere these days for time form. It turned out that the time was wrong. I projected the time into within one point of what it would have been if I had the correct time. So, so having experience and understanding, and sometimes the time is just wrong. Sometimes the track changed for 30 minutes uh, and it's just unexplainable. But yeah, there will be certain, and, and we've all done it. There will be times where I will project up or down because I'm just saying, look, there's just no way this could have happened given this particular group of horses. Uh, I don't feel great about it, but I will do it. And then I'll go back and look at it, but I try not to, unless there's just no other way out. How often do y'all get stuff wrong and go back and correct it? Um, it, it will happen. I would say I might have a couple a month that it will happen to me on. And they're all ones that I had questions about. It might not have been the, it, it, it's rare that you'll get an entire variant wrong. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I'd be off by a point or two, yes, but not dramatically so. But there could be a race, maybe I was convinced that at the time was accurate, everything was fine. And then it proved out that it really wasn't. So you got to go back and say, well, something must have happened. I, I did a Judge Scalia. I went, I went strictly by the book. And, and it, in this particular instance, it was wrong. So you got to feel you just got to go back and, and update it because you want to get it right. And, and when you update it, that's giving anything going forward a better way of getting the next group of figures right. Because if you have a, a stake race or any kind of a race wrong, then every time those horses run back, it's going to stay wrong unless you correct it. Uh, so, yeah, I'm always willing to go back and change something. I think you have to. No, I know that's somewhat of a controversial thing, but I totally agree with you. I mean, it's not, it's, these, these things aren't precise, right? So, you no, know, if you can we, fix it, you know, you got to, um, right. you got to fix it. I mean, it's so that, uh, that, that makes a lot of, a lot of sense. Um, so let's talk about like the, the, the sort of betting side of this, putting it into play because, you know, speed figures are now, I would guess that this, the sort of, biggest single component uh baked into the odds anymore right um and it's often where people start so um you know how, how do you use how do you suggest using figures today as a horse player i think um you got to ask yourself the big question as you're playing the game what figure will take will it take to win this particular race which horses have done it in the past and what is the circumstance of this race? Like, how's it going to be run? Who's going to be in front? What kind of pace is there? And once you get a sense of who, how the race is going to be run, then you're going to get a better sense of who can do that kind of a number that's going to win the race. And then, of course, you start figuring out what's the betting angle. Is this a race I even want to bet? Um, am I playing horizontals? Am I playing vertical? All those kind of things uh, you and I have spent many hours talking about through the years. Um, but yeah, I think that's the essential question. What is the number that it's going to take? And write that right up at the top of the page, whether you're using uh, whatever you're using, you're using a DRF, put it up there. If it's 84, put 84 up there. And so you, you have it as, a, as a, like, it's like a blinking light for you. You're seeing that it's going back and forth. And then you just got to say to yourself, who gets it? And, and if you can answer that question, and if you can answer, and if you can find a couple of horses who maybe have done it, 
but are not going to do it in this race, or at least you don't think they're going to do it in this race, that's almost as good as knowing who is going to do it. Uh, if you can get those ones out that have done it in the past, but it, you could even go back six, seven races, and I've done this. Is this horse capable of getting the number that can win? And the form, the recent form could be terrible for reasons that might be obvious, no reason at all, no apparent reason. But if you that horse can come back to that number, maybe the price is triple what it should be. Uh, you may want to include in a pick six, a pick three, a pick four. And you may not even have to know the reason. You just may want to include because that number can win this race. So talk a little bit about the, uh, we talked about this before, the uh, uh, reputation-induced phenomenon, the <laughs> RIP, uh, you know, the, uh, I guess these are situations where, uh, you know, you're trusting the buyer and you're getting a price. Yeah, reputation-induced phenomenon, I, I take credit for it, RIP. Uh, it, it's an acronym I came up with a long time ago, and I know I told you the story. I, I actually came up with it one time when I, um, I believe it was a two-year-old son of secretariat, the first secretariat to ever run in the U.S., was in at Laurel uh, one day after having broken his maiden in ridiculously slow time with a terrible buyer figure. And, and the Washington Post is writing about this horse. And, oh my God, the first son of secretary. And he was no good. And he was in a race that he couldn't win. And he was like two to five. So we all went there just looking to fire away. And of course he ended up finishing third. And, and I was betting horses to show because I thought he'd be out of the money. And it was, it, bridge jumpers were there. It was totally crazy. But that's kind of where the phrase was coined. It's just like the reputation is different than the reality. The number is telling you what the reality is. The reputation is something else. Another, a, a more recent one I people remember, this is the 2005 Kentucky Derby. And this is a different use of buyer figures, but Bellamy Road came into the Derby with some of the biggest numbers of any three-year-old like ever. Uh, and I believe his race in the wood got 120 buyer. Yep. He won by like mm -hmm. 15 blanks. Well, I thought there was zero chance that he could run that number back because of the circumstance in the Derby. He got loose, no pressure. Everything went perfect in New York. Well, nothing was going to go easy in, in Kentucky. There was a ton of speed. It was just a completely different scenario. He was going to be way over bet. So I tossed him completely, even though he had all the best numbers, because I thought it was strictly reputation induced. It wasn't reality induced. I didn't think there was any way under that circumstance he could run that number. Of course, there was a giant pace that they had set up for Giacomo, <laughs> one no hoper, uh, but it was that set it up for him. Uh, and Bellamy Road was it, it, nowhere to be seen. So I had the hard part right, but unfortunately, sometimes even that doesn't pay off. Yeah, I was about to say, if you got Giacomo over um, uh, a closing argument, <laughs> 50 to 1 over 70 to 1, but uh, but uh, yeah, uh, with the Derby, it's like you can win the battle and lose the war. Yeah, so, it's one of my sad sack gambling stories. Uh, I know I've, I think I've told you this story, but once I came to the conclusion that Bellamy Road wasn't going to win, I said, well, who is going to win? Well, a Fleet Alex had all the numbers. I mean, every he had he was so much better than the rest of the field. I said, well, all right, I'm going to key him on top and superfect us. That's still back in the $1 superfect the days at Churchill, although I still think they do that in the Derby. Yep. Um, 
And I keep, I'm looking all week, I'm trying to find a horse to put underneath him. And I finally come up with Giacomo. I don't think he's going to win. I'm just hoping he runs second or third or fourth. And I run him up and down with the field. And both these horses have green silks. Jerry Moss's silks were green. And the Cash's King of Fleet Alex were green. And I'm watching in the new Churchill Downs press box, which, by the way, is now the mansion where they charge 10 grand a spot to get in. And this is perfect May, first Saturday in May. And Fleet Alex is making his move around the far turn. He's got green. I'm watching my glasses. So I'm looking back for Giacomo and I see the green. He's rolling. And I'm starting to think this has a real chance. Uh, and Fleet Alex rolls and he gets, I think he gets the lead maybe about the eighth pole. And then here comes closing argument. And here comes Giacomo. And I'm thinking, all right, fine. Run second and third. That's great. They weren't supposed to win. Like Giacomo was not supposed to win the race. <laughs> And that that super effective, by the way, paid eight hundred thousand. Uh, yeah, I think it's my, my buddy Mari Wolf estimated if it was a fleet Alex, it might have paid three hundred or four hundred, which would have been perfectly fine by me. Uh, and of course, the fleet Alex then went on to crush Giacomo in the Preakness and the Belmont. So it was like right idea, right book, wrong chapter, wrong day. Well, I believe that was they 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 found out that that almost all those supers were hit by quick picks. Right. And uh, I'm, I'm sure because the fourth place horse uh, um, uh, was, was like also 50, a, yeah, it's also 50. big, big, long price. And the key but was the, the was off the board. Yeah. And if Fleet Alex got, I mean, he he was going to win, but got down on that rail, which is uh, not a place to be that day. And uh, um, yeah, no, that's that's definitely a tough one. I do feel like um, this RIP phenomenon, this is more prevalent today because of you know, the horses race less, but these big races are very high profile. And so we tend to build up horses based on reputation versus performance yeah. more often. So on these big days, you know, we can see this, this happens over and over. It's not, it's yeah. not unique. Now it was interesting this year in, in the Breeders' Cup Classic, which was the final race of our, you know, the contest that you and I love to play in every year at Del Mar. I, all week long, I, I kept trying, I was trying to get to the last race because I had a pretty strong opinion in it. And all week long, I was thinking, well, Nick's go and essential quality will probably both be about two to one or five to two, maybe at the most, but more like two to one. I thought they'd both be two to one. I was like stunned by the betting. Essential quality was, what do you go off at, like eight to five? Yeah. I mean, and Nick's go paid seven bucks, right? Nick's go, I think it was three to one. I think he paid right. eight. So yeah. to me, if you said who's, I, I don't know who the better horse is, but the circumstance clearly favored Nick's go and his numbers were just better. And, and I was, I'm a big essential quality fan. I love that horse, but he was strictly reputation because he'd been the two-year-old champ. He was the favorite in the Derby. He won the Belmont, he won the Travers and he's a neat horse and he, and he's trained by Brad Cox, but there's no way he should have been that kind of a favorite over over next go there's just no possible way um so i ended up i mean i was already blown out of the contest by that point i was trying to get to a certain number just could never get there but i ended up making a, a really big nicks go hot rod charlie exactly which ended up being no good anyway but i just couldn't believe the way the betting was but that was strictly a reputation thing uh and on those big days the reputation because there are more people are betting than on a normal day reputation really does matter. And those are the days that I love to play because if you can find a horse that's dramatically overbet, it does happen on those days, then you can find yourself a potential really big score.
No, that's right. I, we talked about another one. I guess we 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 had um, we had uh, dinner before uh, the the 2019 Breeders' Cup, and it was Omaha Beach uh, was getting all the attention in the Breeders' yep. Cup uh, dirt mile, yep. Yep. and then spun the run was ten to one, but had the faster numbers, and uh, and I mean it it wasn't even a race, and uh, um, that you know again that was that was a classic because Omaha Beach, remember, would have been the Derby favorite. Right, got uh, that term member had some kind of a throat issue literally days before the Derby and ended up being scratched and came back and I believe had one race, like it maybe six furlongs or something off the long layoff um, mm -hmm. and didn't have a figure that matched Spunda Run's figure from Parks when he had won the, the Belezzi mile. Um, but people couldn't accept the number. They just said, well, it's a one figure thing. But what was fascinating is that particular number, there have been two or three horses come out of that race to confirm the number at various, one went to Honing Valley, one went somewhere else, I can't remember the names of all the horses, but it was clear that that was a really good number by that time. And I know, as I've said to you before, my theory on these horses that run, they run right along, they're running well, then they run the big number of their life, Bellamy Road being an example, you don't bet them if they're going to get bet like it's going to happen again, like they're going to be six to five, but you do bet them if people don't believe it. Uh, if people say, well, this is just nonsense, this can't be real, then you get 10 to one on a horse like Spunderon who just runs out of the TV set in the dirt mile. Omaha Beach ended up getting second, and then it kind of pushed me along to give me a shot to, to do pretty well in that, in that Breeders' Cup tournament. No, you're right. He's a bet at 10 to one. He's not at three to one. I mean, it's all exactly. about, it's all about the kind of, you know, what's the chance of replicating that performance and what price exactly. you're going to get. I mean, yep, you know, right. um, I totally agree with that. What I, we, we haven't talked about this much in class and, and we probably won't as much because I'm a dirt racing guy and, and we focus a lot on Oakland park, but, but what about like philosophically making figures on turf? They're harder. Uh, I mean, it's, we're dealing with different distances. We're dealing with rails that move. We're dealing with not as much data on a particular day. Um, you're dealing with pace situations, which are very different than dirt racing. Uh, you're dealing with trainers that strictly have their horses trained to run the last quarter mile. So I, times just, uh, look, we do our best with our numbers, but times just are not as relevant in turf racing as they are in dirt racing. It's all about trips, anticipating who's going to be where, uh, having a sense of uh, probably even more so than in dirt racing, how the race is going to be run. Trainer intention is gigantic in grass races, especially in these, in these big stake races. I mean, everybody knows the names of the right guys who win these races. They win them for a reason. Uh, they're pointing for them. But yes, it's very much harder to, to give uh, precise numbers on turf than on dirt uh, for some of the reasons I cited. And I think maybe the biggest is you're just dealing with so many more variables on turf that you don't on a dirt track. Uh, and, and the rail moving in and out at these, at these courses is one of them. Uh, and probably the biggest thing is just the pace scenario is so much different in grass racing. And we do adjust our numbers for pace, when there's a super ridiculously slow pace in a turf race, we'll bump our number up. 
realizing that there's no way these horses could have run any faster than they, than they did the final time. So we'll, we'll, we'll bump them up a little bit, knowing that if the pace had been more reasonable, the time would have been faster. So like uh, when you were first doing figures and, and got into racing in the 70s, I mean, Maryland was one, I guess, one of the first tracks. I mean, the, the DC International was a big race. Mm-hmm. Was, it, was it obvious at that time that it, like at what point it became obvious to you, wow, this is just something totally different? versus you know turf, turf racing versus yeah, dirt. turf racing versus dirt yeah i mean we we didn't even i never did a turf figure until i'm gonna i don't know the answer to this question we didn't do turf figures when we first started putting figures in drf uh it was sometime after that that they wanted us to to all right see if you can figure out a way where you're comfortable making these and i I'm not going to remember exactly when that started, uh, but yeah, yeah, I knew early on it was just a completely different game. Uh, yeah, first of all, I mean, it's obvious some horses just like turf, yeah. some just dirt. I mean, that's that's obvious to anybody who plays the game, and and they're not interchangeable. There's very few horses in history, secretary being the exception, that were equally as great on dirt and turf. Uh, but yeah, so yeah, I, I knew quickly, and and when I evaluated grass races. I did not, I don't think I ever looked at times back in the day. Uh, and now obviously I, I have respect for our figures. I think we do the best we can with it. Uh, but do I think our dirt figures are more reliable than our turf figures? Yeah, I do. So talk a bit about track bias. I mean, you, 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 you know, you, you cut your teeth in Maryland, which those tracks had some track biases. Parks historically has had some track biases. Uh, tell me about that as part of your handicapping. So it's a huge part of it if you can identify it. And for people, a lot of people will see the first race goes wire to wire and they go, ah, it's an inside bias. Well, maybe the worst is three to five, right? So you got you to think this through a little bit before you come to a determination. I mean, the last two Breeders' Cups at Del Mar, you could make a pretty good case that the outside was way the better place on dirt in both those. And that didn't become apparent immediately, but it became apparent over time. So going way back in time, I read Steve uh, Davidowitz's book, Betting Thoroughbreds, which was the first time I'd ever encountered the words track bias. And it was a fascinating concept to me because, wait wait a second, aren't all tracks the same? Well, no, they're not, not even close to being the same. And I, I first saw it probably at Bowie when like the inside of the track on some of those winter days would be frozen. So obviously the horses on the inside are going to run faster, right? Than the horses on the outside where it's not, it's not frozen and, and they're, and they're uh, going in a little more to the dirt. Where I started betting on it was at Pimlico in the 70s, even into the 80s, where the inside was absolutely gold. Uh, I, I remember hitting a, when I, when I did not have a lot of money left in my, uh, it wasn't an account back then, but it was in what, whatever whatever pocket I was having my $100 bills, I didn't have a lot in it. And I went out and bet a cold double one day of two faint-hearted sprinters going a mile on the 16th at Pimlico. They both won it like 30 to one, it paid 500. And that got me on a really nice roll uh, at, at Pimlico. But yeah, that's when I first noted it, that, and, that you, if you're wide on those tracks and you and you make note of the horses that are and watch when they come back and perhaps they're going to be on the inside and then you downgrade all the horses that are on the inside and 
I know I've told you this, but the, the most famous one for me was in 2010 at Parks, uh, where the outside was, the inside was death. You could not win in there. If your horse went down in there, it was like going into quicksand. So you would, and it's harder, much harder on a track like that to understand how the race is going to be run than on a track, say, like Pimlico, where you've got a general sense of who's going to be the early speed, who's going to get to the rail. You can see those races better. These races are a little harder to, quote, see when the outside is better because the jockeys kind of got to get to the place where you want them to get to. Uh, but certain jockeys knew it, certain jockeys didn't. So you got to watch, get a sense of who the jockeys are and, and watch how they ride. Uh, but yeah, the outside was like a conveyor belt. And it, it was a really good long run for uh, me and my buddy Ray Tannehill in 2010 at Parks. We were playing it every day uh, for about four months. And it's not like that anymore. I mean, it still has that reputation. There are days, but sort of like Pimlico, there are people who are still convinced the rail wins every race. It doesn't. And there are people that convince you can never win on the rail at Parks. That's no longer the case. But once it happens for a period of time, it kind of, kind of sinks in. But if you identify a track bias, it is the single most powerful weapon in the sport uh, because everything else you know can just, just throw it out because if horses get on the good part or the wrong part of the track, they are going to run much better or much worse than they should. And if you can get a sense of who's going to be helped or hurt by certain things, that gives you a gigantic edge. Forget everything else you know. Just start firing when, when you got a track bias. Well, I remember you telling me some stat about the, the penalty that you would get for running on the rail was was worth how many buyer points? Something it was some big number, right? Seventeen buyer points. Uh, we called it the seventeen point solution. Uh, we actually found horses that went from the rail to the outside would improve by seventeen points, and horses that went from the outside to the rail would go back by seventeen points. It was, and it went on for months. So yeah, because I, I, I actually added them all the different numbers up and that was the average when I came up with it was 17 buyer points, which anybody who follows the numbers, that, that's many, many links. Yeah, it's a, it's a, that's, a, that's a lot of links. Um, <laughs> so I know that, uh, you know, now I guess, again, you, you cover basketball. Well, you're retired, but you're still, to what extent do you play the races now? Do you play the races outside of contests and big days or, or not really? I, I will occasionally play. I mean, I'll take friends with me to parks and, and we'll play. We'll play some pick fours or pick fives or whatever. But yeah, my, my, my year is um, from November to March. I'm the radio color analyst for Penn State basketball. Uh, so I'm on the road a lot. I, mean, I get 30 games. I'm traveling so i just don't have the time to do anything other than my figures so i'm not doing a lot of gambling other than occasional contests which i love to play because i think you know fortunately in the contest at least up till this point we're not playing against the groups which are so difficult to tangle with i mean look i, I <laughs> you mean the computers is that what you're talking about the computer group. Right. yeah the computer groups I, i'm overmatched i know it so i'm not trying to beat them i just hope that they don't like what i like or or their algorithm doesn't suggest they should be betting on what i just bet on um but yeah i do play occasionally but not as much as i do more in the summertime and in the fall when i have a little more time maybe if i've been following a particular horse 
uh, I might hang with it. Maybe if I hear something on occasion from people, I mean, obviously I know trainers, I know owners and I'll listen to that. I know you occasionally you'll give me some good piece of advice. Uh, so I, I'll listen to that. And then I'll, what I'll do is if I hear something, I'll try to put that together in the context of how I see a race or races. I'll still, I'm not just going to blindly bet on anything. Mm-hmm. I still want to know what's going on because a lot of times somebody says, well, I love my horse. And then you look at the race and go, well, you might love your horse. Your horse has no chance <laughs> in what you, once you look at how the race shapes and the numbers. But I do love playing the contest. I'll play like maybe 15 a year trying to qualify for the BCBC and maybe win some money along the way. But you know, like you, and it was awesome when you won it. Uh, uh, that's the holy grail for me. That you know, I want to win it. I finished third in, in 2019, and uh, every everything that I do all year is geared to that contest. I'm watching all the big races. I've actually found this year I had to do a little less work because I already had the work done. It was like mm-hmm. it was like you didn't have to study as much for the final exam uh, because you'd done all the tests all all year long, uh, and, and I was just I made my notes on all these horses. So, and and a good thing about the Breeders' Cup, unlike a typical card, you know weeks ahead of time who's running. Oh, yeah. The only thing you don't know is is the post and different the last minute things, but you you can already do all your replay work and and your video work and your figure work and all that kind of stuff. Have that out of the way for the and the last bit the last week for me is always and it's strictly and will always be the most important part of this figuring out how to gamble how are you betting and these contests it's everything get a strategy uh, have audibles have backup strategies uh, you know and i I love that part of it that's just fascinating Mm -hmm. to me no i i feel like that i agree with that you know i you know the great thing about the breeders cup betting challenge in live contests like that is you don't have to bet every race and so you you know it's it's like I'm constantly thinking about, you know, where the, what are the races where I really want to take advantage of things? Where do I want to make my move? You know, who are the horses I'm going to lean on? And, you know, I almost try to map out all these different scenarios that can get me to the end point. You know, what do I do if I'm left with so little money? What do I do if I hit early? Um, and it's, uh, it's fun to think about. This is the sort of first year I felt I didn't, you know, I, I ended up with zero, which is fine, but I, I played, I did the Breeders' Cup betting challenge and, bet on the sides first time i did that correctly because mm-hmm. i've had i've had years where i've had a you know good run in the breeders cup betting challenge but you know in my mind either you're going to finish top five top ten or, or, or finish with zero right there's, there's no if you can't cash <laughs> if you can't cash so i've had years where i you know i had the first year i played i played at keeneland live and you know i i thought i played really well i handicapped really well and i was driving home and I'm like, well, I just, I, I didn't, I, I lost money, right? What am I doing? And so I actually, this year I bet, I bet on the side and played in the contest and, and it does set me up potentially for a, just a, a humongous loss um, when I'm, when I'm just totally wrong, but uh, yep. you know, it, it's, I don't want to, you know, it, but you know, also it allows me to be right and not necessarily have to win the contest. Uh, do you bet on the side uh, during the contest or is it all contest until you're out? Yeah, I've been all contest until I'm out, um, but there are times when I think about making some plays. I just find that so consuming in trying, even even like the 10 minutes before a race, I'm always updating, I'm always changing mm-hmm. and, and just trying to get the best for best value for what I feel comfortable betting in a particular race. And I just would find it distracting to do something else. I, I could do it. 
but I just feel comfortable doing it this way. Um, and this year I started playing once I got out because uh, I still had opinions and I didn't want to walk out of there with a good opinion. Turned out I should have walked out of there because <laughs> I, I just got I got the last race wrong, the exactly that I liked. Um, but yeah, I, I've, I've strictly been uh, a contest guy and I, each year, what's fascinating about it, and I know this is true for you too, I learn more about how to play it uh, I, I learned from dip, how watching different people, how they play it. And, and I get a better sense of uh, what's the right move and what isn't. And when I do these now, the Breeders' Cup, I got a sense of when every race, obviously I don't bet them all, but I spend more times on uh, more time on the races where I feel really comfortable. What I've learned in these other contests, the preliminary contests and the ones to qualify or other things that, that you can make good money in, I only look at about four races. If it's like a 10 race card, I don't waste my time with the other six because I don't have, I'll spend two hours on a race or four hours, whatever it takes to get it right. And then once I'm comfortable, then that's it. Cause you don't need, as you said, you don't need to bet 10 races in these contests. You only need to be right a couple of times. Uh, you just gotta have the right number bet on the right combinations at the right time. No, the, in last year when I, I, I earned my two BCBC seats in contests that I was traveling while playing. And so I basically, <laughs> I, I basically had the, the race or two I wanted to bet. I made yep. those bets. Yep. And then in one of the contests, I was in, in Universal Orlando and I'm at my daughter's 18th birthday dinner. And I'm, I realized, oh my God, I'm in second. I, I should try <laughs> to win this thing. And so I'm like, I haven't even looked at the race. I don't, I'm calling people saying, who do you like in this race? And then I, and I, did, I ended up missing and so today i finished second still but it is you know it, it's it's like you know picking your spot and taking your uh swing what was so this year your end game strategy would have been an exacta or or was it nick skill what was your strategy this year yeah, it, how did it, it play it, out right i was trying to get um thirty thousand because i wanted to bet two exactus uh I mean, 25,000. I wanted to bet two exactas and, and I completely got the prices that he's exact is wrong. I wanted to bet. I, I liked hot rod Charlie. He was my key horse. I liked hot rod Charlie over essential quality. If Nick's go got in a speed duel with Medina spirit, which I didn't think was likely, but it was possible. It, it, unlikely, but possible. And then if Nick's go got the lead, which I thought he was about 70% to do, I thought he was a hundred percent to win the race if he got the lead clear, I just didn't think anybody could beat him. And I had convinced myself that hot rod Charlie was the next best horse. I thought he was at that stage. I thought he ran better than essential quality in the Belmont, even though he was beaten. I didn't think Medina spirit would fire as big without the lead. Uh, turned out I was wrong on all of that. And, or there's a possibility that hot rod Charlie got on a dead rail. That's also entirely possible. And that there's nothing to do about that part of it. Um, but the exacta was paying the uh, one I liked the best. Next go over Hot Rod Charlie was paying thirty eight dollars. I thought it was going to pay nineteen. I I just was way off. It turned out to be a bad thing because I bet a lot of real money on it after I got out of the contest. But I will say this: if Nick's go had been three to one, and I had like twenty five thousand or thirty or more, I don't think I'd have bet the exacta. I think I'd have done exactly what the guy who won the contest did. I'd have bet him to win. Because that, that takes one less variable out, right? You don't have to worry about who's second. Exactly. If thirty or 40000 to win can get you potentially a half a mil, uh, then that's the, you don't, you don't bother, you don't bother betting exactly just at that point. Yeah, I wonder, 
you know, I wonder what I, I had 18 and then bet, uh, bet 12 on the favor in the turf. So I went down to six, but I do wonder if I had, you know, turned that 18 into 35 or, you know, whatever it would have been, it would have been sure. you know, 34, 35, 40. I'm yep. pretty sure I would have blown it in the classic. So I, I'm pretty sure. I wonder if I would have been smart enough to play to win versus the exactas. And in, in some ways, um, I don't think I would have been. So it was, I was sort of destined to lose anyway um, in, in a probably a gut wrenching way, regardless of what happened. W where did you get knocked out um, the, this well, last year? Uh, yeah, it was interesting. I had about what I thought were eight pretty good opinions and just could never put them together. And I made a couple of betting errors along the way. So in the Golden Pal turf sprint, um, I, I conceded the race to Golden Pal, and I, I was trying to get to, like I said, 25 or 30,000. So I bet like five exactas, uh, one of which was with like a four, 30 to one shot, which was paying like 300. I had it for 200. That would have got me right to 30,000. And what I neglected to do was take this 30 to one shot and put them second in trifectas with a, some other horses. But, or, or excuse me, third in trifectas uh, rather than just exactas. And it turned out Golden Pal won. One of the second favorites was second, and my 30 to one finished third. Ugh. So I could have had a $100 trifecta would have gotten me my 30,000, just a betting error. Uh, and, and I also, in the, uh, the mile, all week long, uh, in fact, Maury Wolf and I were kind of on the same page on this. We thought Michael McCarthy's horse was going to be undervalued. Uh, I'm losing track of the name right now, but he was the inside speed. Uh, there was kind of one other speed horse in the race who I didn't think was fast enough to go with his horse. And all week long, I'm thinking, boy, he's going to be like eight, 10 to one. So I made a pretty big bet in the contest on him. It turned out he was went off at 10 and I made a betting error there too, because I, I was convinced that Space Blues ended up winning the race. I said, he's going to get, he's going to be so far back that there's, by the time he starts making his run, he's just not going to catch up to this lone speed. Mm -hmm. Well, it turned out Space Blue's got the trip of life right behind my lone speed. And Appleby was winning everything, yeah. uh, winning everything all year. And I was aware of that fact. And he comes running, uh, goes by my horse in the stretch in the exact pace 50. I should have had that too. Uh, mm -hmm. Those were two, I, the opinions were right. The betting was bad. Mm -hmm. It still wouldn't have done me any good. I'd probably, I'd have probably blown it in the end anyway. <laughs> uh, possibly, unless, like I say, unless I had gotten a thirty or some number like that and said, you know what, I'm just going to fire on Nick's go, which is easy to say after the fact. But I never anticipated Nick's go was going to be three to one. That just wasn't something that had crossed my mind. Mm -hmm. Do you think about in these contests a number that you need to get to, or have you, or you sort of? Or do you watch the leaderboard more? No, I start. I start trying to get to a hundred thousand in the Breeders' Cup betting challenge. That that's the number, and, and with the understanding that it could be a little less, it's often a little more, and be willing to adjust. But yeah, that's a number that I'm kind of targeting. So in, in this particular, this one was I was just trying to get to the classic because I had a, a probably was my best mm -hmm. opinion. It, other times I might go somewhere else to try to get there. Uh, but yeah, that's the, that's generally the number I'm typically in a contest about 10 times. The entry fee is kind of a number that I'm looking for. Like the, mm -hmm. the Pegasus contest is 6,000 entry fee or they didn't have it that like yeah, that this year. year and 60,000 is kind of a number I'm shooting for. And again, you have to adjust. I mean, I was in a, I was in a contest at Canterbury that last summer 
where um, if they had very many fewer entrants than they expected to have. So I immediately adjusted the number that I needed to get downward because there were just fewer players. And I was it was top 10 were getting into the Breeders' Cup. That's all I was trying to do is get in the top 10 to, to save that $10,000 entry fee. Uh, so yeah, that's something that you have to, and, and, and obviously the leaderboard tells you something too. If mm -hmm. the leaderboard is something different than what you expected, then you, you're either gonna have to go higher than your number or potentially even lower. Mm -hmm. Well, let me just, uh, again, and I appreciate all your time. Let me just end with some quick fire questions. What's the highest figure you've ever given? Do you ever, do you have a. In the yeah, I, I, yeah, I think it was yeah, I'm trying to, like, names are starting to escape me. Uh, who is the lost in the fog? Lost in the fog at Turf Paradise uh, rents an insane number as like a two year old, like 109. It's like, what? And I remember sitting down to do it. I said, can this possibly be right? Well, it turned out it was right. I think that might be the biggest one. Now, I don't do I do not do the New York circuit. I don't yeah, do the Florida sure. circuit. I don't do Kentucky So I'm not, and, and California. So I'm not going to see those kind of horses. I think that might have been the, the biggest one I wrote down at, at, at any of the tracks I've done. And they let that number stand? Or did, did uh... Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, I suspect I oh, called. You're right. Yeah, it turned out we were. It was a good number. I think I probably would have called Andy or Mark or and or some combination of Randy and said, "Hey, here's what I'm thinking. Can you guys take a look at this?" And we will do that among the group. Uh, we've had that certainly in derbies where we know there's going to be some controversy. Everybody will kind of take a look at it and just say, "Hey, do you, do you concur or do you think maybe there's a different way of looking at this?" What's the best horse you've ever seen live? Boy, I saw a spectacular bid break his maiden at Pimlico. Uh, now, I didn't know he was going to be spectacular bid. Uh, mm. My first Preakness I watched from the rail just happened to be 1973. So that was mm. Secretariat. So I sort of saw him, but in passing, he was just, I might have seen him like five seconds, right? I was on the rail of the infield. They had to put up the fence after that because people came roaring up to the rail. If you ever watch old videos, mm -hmm. uh, I might be in it. Uh, so th those would be two for you know, that I covered. Um, boy, Smarty Jones would be right up there. I still don't think people understand how great a racehorse he was. Uh, mm -hmm. Didn't win the Triple Crown. Uh, certainly American Pharaoh was every bit as good as the hype. Uh, mm -hmm. Just phenomenal. Um, so th those would be the ones for me. So I guess the um, the the best sort of PA based horse you've ever covered was was Smarty Jones. Yeah, not close. Uh, it, it, it made a Pennsylvania bred broke his maiden, won his second start in the PA Nursery at mm. Parks. Um, and I remember that second number was one hundred and five. And I remember mm. telling John Service, John, and that's kind of when John. It wasn't the number; it was how much he won by one by fifteen. Mm. Um, that's when John started thinking, hey. I might have something other, just a little Pennsylvania bread. And then, of course, he went to Aqueduct in Arkansas and the rest is history. Um, but yeah, he would certainly be the best at, uh, from our local circuit. Uh, and it's been fun because we've had, as you know, in recent years until this year, had three straight winners of Breeders' Cup races come out of mm -hmm. parks. Uh, uh, for John Service with Jaywalk, and, and we mentioned Carlos Carlos Guerrero and Sponda Run, and, and then more recently Butch Reed and Viquis. So to have horses mm -hmm. coming out of parks winning Breeders' Cup race is pretty awesome. The uh, I guess that was, I mean, because Fleet Alex was Delaware based, right? So you consider he, that 
he was Delaware based, but I consider that a local horse because his whole ownership group were Philly yes. people. I mean, Chuck Zachney and Joe Lara went to uh, Father Judge and Archbishop Ryan, two Catholic schools in Northeast Philly, and the rest of the ownership group was all local. Um, Tim Bridgie trained at Delaware, and, and then of course the Barbaro people, the the Jacksons were local people. Michael Matz is mm-hmm. local. They live out, mm-hmm. they all are out in the outskirts of Philadelphia, out in the horse country of Chester County in Pennsylvania. So yeah, that was kind of astonishing that I had three straight years of Philadelphia mm-hmm. slash Pennsylvania horses winning one, two, three, four, five triple crown races out of seven. And the two they lost, Smarty was the best horse in the Belmont. And I think you can make a pretty good case that Fleet Alex is the best horse in the Derby. They could have easily won seven in a row. Yeah, I actually, I, you know, I, I, I like the Fleet Alex the best of those three. So I thought, you know, I've just thought, some of the, you know, like his turn of foot he showed when he dominated the Belmont yep. and, you know, what he overcame in the Preakness. But, uh, and I saw him, um, uh, I saw him when he won the, I think the Sanford at Saratoga when he shipped up from, from uh, mm-hmm. my first ever trip to Saratoga. I saw him win um, there. Do you have a favorite track? Del Mar. Del Mar. Yeah. Huh. yeah I, I just, the whole vibe of being there, um, you know, I love the fact that the Breeders' Cup was there. I hope it goes back many times in the future. Um, just when you can look out from the grandstand, see the Pacific Ocean, you know, great walks in the morning. Uh, it's just such a beautiful area of the country for people that have never been there. Now, the best racing is at Saratoga. There's no argument about that. And I love being at Saratoga. It's, it's a great place. Uh, Santa Anita is very cool. But yeah, for me, Del Mar is probably my favorite. If you could have one closed racetrack back, what would it be? Boy, probably Atlantic City. Uh, Such a great night racing place back in the day with my buddy, the late Bob Levy ran it. And Bob was one of the all-time great horse people uh, and loved the game. That was actually my first time around. First time I covered the Triple Crown was bet twice this year, 1987. Mm -hmm. And Bob owned him and he made sure everybody was Included, uh, and I learned so much about the game from him. In fact, I was at the paper, my first year at the paper was 1985. So I went down to Atlantic City when the meet opened to introduce myself to Bob and Jim Murphy was the general manager. And just to say, hey, I'm here, I'm, I'm gonna do stories. I'm sure I'll be talking to you guys at some point. So I, I meet Bob, I'm, I'm maybe talking to him for five minutes. He says, what are you doing tomorrow? I said, I don't know. He says, want to go to Saratoga? I said, mm-hmm. I said, my kind of guy. And I'm thinking, you know, like I'm going to meet him on a turnpike somewhere. We're going to drive up. He said, hey, meet me in the hangar. We'll take my jet up. The- <laughs> so, yeah, just just a, a really, really nice man. And, and two years later, or a year later, he ends up with Bet Twice, who won the Arlington Washington Charities, the two-year-old. And, of course, ended up winning the Belmont Stakes the next year, uh, foiling Ali Sheba's triple crown bid. Yeah, those horses, they won all sorts of races. That's my favorite crop. That's the first crop I grew up with. And that that crop... Um, Great group, man. <laughs> uh, and, you know, like they also knocked heads. What's notable about them is how much yep. they were willing to lose. And yes. uh, I don't know if you remember the Travers that year, but you get those two and Lost Code and Java yep. Gold coming back. And so it was... Yep. Uh, um, it was a great group. It was a great way to... And Gulch, you had the... Who became a sprinter. I mean, it just... Uh, yeah, 87, 87 was one of the best ever. And that was my first triple crown covering for the mm-hmm. paper. Uh, the first one I actually covered was for that sports paper in Baltimore in 84. Uh, I went down for the Swale Derby. But yeah, to, to cover that group. And, and my favorite race that year was the Haskell. It was Lost Code, Ali Sheba, and Bet Twice. And like to your point, normally these horses avoid each other. And they mm-hmm. did the opposite. 
they all showed up. And I remember Craig Perret had the big decision. Lost code would be in front, bet twice would be second. And you know, Ali Shiva's coming. So mm-hmm. he's got to make the decision. When am I going after this horse in front? And am I going to have enough to hold off this horse who I know is coming from behind me? And he made the right decision of winning the Haskell, which is a huge, huge race, obviously, for the Levies, because mm-hmm. he owned the city right down the Garden State Parkway. Um, let's go back. Let's go to basketball. What's your uh, favorite uh, college gym to go to? The Palestra in Philadelphia, unquestionably, is the greatest gym in America. Uh, it's actually the University of Pennsylvania's uh, gym. But for years, all the Philadelphia Big Five teams played there. They played each other there. Now they have their own gym, so they don't play there as much. And for the people that don't know, the Big Five consists of Philadelphia, which has won three national titles. St. Joe's, which has been in the Final Four. Penn's been in the Final Four. LaSalle's won a national championship. And Temple has been a couple of Final Fours. And of course, that's one of the great historical programs. So yeah, the Plester holds about uh, 8,700 people. It's only one deck. It's just an awesome place. As far as an, another on-campus arena, if you get a chance to go there, go to Allen Fieldhouse at the University of Kansas. Uh, great fans. It's the Palestra with a second deck. Uh, every game is sold out, and it's people in Kansas. They're nice to their team, and they're nice to the other team. They're actually nice people who just love the game. It's very un-Northeast, like uh, it's Central America, like a great place. Go treat yourself to a game at Allen Fieldhouse. And if you want a game at the Palestra, track me down. I'll take you there. Who's the best college basketball player that you covered or saw that uh, that didn't make it that you were surprised? Well, I, I had I had two that were national players of the year. Uh, both ended up being had NBA careers. One was Lionel Simmons at LaSalle, who graduated in 1990, finished with 3,217 points. At that time, he was the third leading scorer in Division I history. In the intervening, what are we talking, three decades, only one player has scored more. Uh, Phenomenal player. His team won 100 games in four years. He was a Philly kid. his team his senior year finished 30 and two, uh, just tremendous player, had several good years in the, in the pros for the Sacramento Kings. And then the cartilage in his knee gave out. So he didn't have a long career, but he was very, very good. And then Jameer Nelson at St. Joe's in 2004 was also the national player of the year, uh, had a great pro career, played 14 years, uh, was the Orlando Magic point guard the year they made the championship against uh, Kobe Bryant and the Lakers. In fact, I'm convinced to this day they would have won it had he not gotten a shoulder injury midway through the season. Uh, He was also a phenomenal player. He still holds the school record for points, assists, and steals. Uh, There's not many players that hold all those records at once because I think they're kind of different uh, skill sets, uh, but he, he held them all. So yeah, those two of the players that I covered their teams, they are, they are clearly the two best and also really good people who I still stay in touch with today. It's one of the cool things about covering sports and horse racing is like that too. Uh, it's my favorite sport to cover because of the relationships that you have with people. And in horse racing, unlike a lot of the big pro sports, they love to talk to people. Uh, there's no press conferences. It's not informal. You can actually get to know people and tell their stories. Uh, that's what, that's why I love the racetrack, but thanks for asking the question about the hoop guys. But yeah, cause that's a big part of my deal. And 2004 was the, that was the craziest, wildest year of my career. Cause I had St. Joe's the year they went 27 and 0 in the regular season, ended up just missing the final four, uh, by two points. And then literally I got off the, the run in San Antonio at the final four and Smarty Jones was winning the Arkansas Derby 
And I rode that right, right through the finish line. So that, that was a crazy, crazy year. Well, I, uh, you're a Maryland guy and you went to university of Maryland. And um, I remember where I was when Lenny bias died. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I don't know the extent that I guess you weren't in the media then, but, but uh, you know, I mean, you know, my thought was he was going to be a star. I don't, you know, I'm curious in terms of your perceptions of him as a player. I thought the two best players in ACC history were David Thompson of NC State and Lenny Bias of Maryland. We say, well, wait a second, what about Michael Jordan? Well, Michael Jordan wasn't Michael Jordan in college. Uh, mm-hmm. He didn't do the stuff he was capable of because that isn't what Dean Smith asked him to do. I thought Lenny Bias would have been a 15-year surefire Hall of Famer. Uh, for the Celtics. And of course, if you remember, they drafted him second and they still had Bird, McHale, Paris then. Uh, they weren't at the end. They were getting closer to the end, but they weren't at the end. Um, so yeah, we're, I, I, I had actually been at the paper about a year, but I wasn't covering basketball. I didn't start covering basketball until the next season. But yeah, I remember that vividly because he actually died in the dorm, literally right across the driveway from the first dorm I was in when I went to Maryland. Uh, really one of the tragic days in sports history. And it kind of, it, it ruined the career of Lefty Drizel there yep. because everybody in, in, in the world, even then somebody has to be responsible, even yep. if maybe they're not responsible. That's just kind of how the way, unfortunately how the world works. But yeah, Lenny was just a, a phenom, uh, 90% free throw shooter, great three point shooter, six foot eight. I mean, he just looked like a pro. He looked like well, he was man. also a freak athlete. So Correct. I just, I think that, you know, I, 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 he was as good an athlete as anyone out there. And so yep. he would just would have been a monster. Um, yeah, and he, and he went to high school right there in Hyattsville, right right around the corner from College Park. It was a local kid made good. It's, it's just one of the all-time sad sports stores. Mm-hmm. So uh, 1980s, were you an ACC guy or Big East guy? I grew up ACC. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that was what I, you know, I went to Maryland. That's kind of what I grew up watching. Uh, the, the old Saturday games, the Billy Packer, Jim Thacker games from back mm-hmm. in the day. Uh, so yeah, that, that was, that, and, and look, I became a big East guy kind of when I came to Philly, uh, the first year I'm in Philadelphia. In fact, opening night of Garden State Park, April 1 of 85 is the night Philadelphia beat Georgetown. Dan and Rupp and Big East had three of the final four teams. That's never been, was never done before. It hasn't been done since to have three teams of the same conference. So yeah, it was, it was fun. I mean, they're, they're kind of for a long time, they're equal. And now of course, everything's changed. It's all become about football. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was always a great argument, which is the better league, uh, but both produced ridiculous teams, uh, national champions, all time, great players. Uh, and, and the fact that they were both in the East was pretty cool. Yeah. Anyway, look, I appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. And uh, again, thank you very much, Dick Girardi. Absolutely. Thank you, Marshall.